on today's episode of the Law of Tech podcast. It really affects your relationship with your law degree and with the legal profession. Some of these former clerks, like myself, are kind of driven from their dream jobs or driven from the profession entirely. And unfortunately, due to the lack of information sharing and the secrecy and the culture of silence and fear and deifying judges, we are really perpetuating problematic behaviors in the judiciary. Um, The first step is increasing transparency on law school campuses around clerkships. We're certainly not stopping there. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Law of Tech podcast. I'm your host, Halasa Drukarch, and I am joined by my co-host, Marco Mendola. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. And we're back with another episode of the Legal Tech Startup Spotlight, this time featuring Aliza Schatzman with the Legal Accountability Project. Aliza, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me on the podcast. But before we delve deeper into the topic of this episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Betty Blocks. Are you looking for a way to create solutions that will make legal processes faster, easier, and more efficient? Do you want to offer the best client experience with great digital services? Well, look no further than our sponsor for this episode, Betty Blocks. Rapidly build custom legal tech applications such as legal intake portals, ESG assessments without a single line of code. Start building your own solutions today with Betty Blocks. We're excited to talk to you because I think that, like we spoke about a little bit uh, before we actually hit the record button, the U.S. legal landscape, judiciary landscape is pretty new to us, uh, us as hosts, but perhaps also to some of the listeners of the podcast. So we're very excited to talk about your experiences within the field, what you're up, uh, what you're up to, what you're doing. And so to kind of kick off the episode, I think we can cl- close off the round of introductions by handing the mic to you. Uh, and asking if you can tell a little bit more about yourself, just introduce yourself, where you started professionally, where you're at now. Sure. So I am the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. We are a nonprofit aimed at ensuring that law clerks, so new attorneys, have a positive clerkship experience while extending support and resources to those who do not. I graduated from Williams College in 2013 with a BA in political science and psychology I graduated from Washington University in St. Louis School of Law in 2019, intending to focus on public interest government law. I wanted to be a prosecutor, so a government attorney. And so I decided I'd start my career by clerking in D.C. Superior Court. Maybe a first thing to kind of integrate into this introduction, um, where this is a legal tech startup spotlight. Um, so the goal is to talk about something related to legal tech, technology uh, in the legal space. Where did that kind of come into play? Where did that introduce itself into the picture? Sure. So our main initiative at the Legal Accountability Project is a centralized clerkships database, innovative legal technology that democratizes information about judges and clerkship experiences, ensuring that law students have as much information about as many judges as possible before they make what is considered a really important career decision, who to clerk for, who is going to be a good boss and a mentor who's going to launch your career. And similarly, which judges you might want to avoid. If you look at what law school students, I'm assuming this is at the end of their 
kind of law school career that they would have to do this, right? Uh, this um, clerkship, if that, if they're interested. So people clerk either immediately after graduation, some get a few years work experience, some do clerk mid-career as a pivot, but law students begin considering clerkships the first year, 1L fall. And unfortunately, regardless of a law school's ranking or financial resources, there's really just a dearth of information about judges as managers. I'll ask students how they'll identify a good boss and mentor, how they'll avoid judges who mistreat their clerks. And there is just a universal lack of information in response to that question. So before um, the Legal Accountability Project came to be, what, like in your case, for instance, maybe that's like um, a good point of departure. What did the process look like um, when you're a law student of getting a clerkship without the Legal Accountability Project, so the tools and resources you're offering, you said there's hardly any information, like you really don't know how to go about it. So without that information, like what do you do to ensure that you have a good experience, that you get a place in the first place? What does it look like? Good question. So I should distinguish between federal clerkships. So there are Article Three life tenure and federal judges. There are some Article One judges appointed by Congress for 10 to 15 year terms. There are federal judges who are Senate confirmed. And there are state court judges in every state and local jurisdiction. Those folks are sometimes elected, sometimes appointed for the, by the governor for a 10 or 15 year term. Um, The top law schools are really focused on federal clerkships, which is definitely a disservice to many students because often the trial work experience would be better in a state court clerkship in the jurisdiction where they'd like to practice. But your question about the application process, it is opaque, it is decentralized, it is confusing, and students regularly call it nebulous and a black box. If you are applying for a federal clerkship, you will likely utilize OSCAR, the online system for clerkship application and review. That is an online portal whereby law students will submit as many as 50 or 100 clerkship applications during one week in June, pursuant to what is called the OSCAR Federal Law Clerk Hiring Plan. Judges will go through hundreds of applications in the span of a couple days. Then they will invite people to interview They will often invite students to accept the clerkship on the spot. And unfortunately, many students are pressured to, even when they could Mm -hmm. certainly use some time to think about it. Um, The state court systems are all very decentralized, depending not only on the state, but on the jurisdiction. Some judges are more transparent than others about their hiring processes. Some state courts do generally align with the federal law clerk hiring plan um, by which Judges are not supposed to interview students until the end of their 2L year um, so that more people have grades, more people have experiences to show. It sort of tries to level the playing field. Um, So those are generally the two application processes. Unfortunately, in the federal system, not every judge complies with the hiring plan. Um, Some will hire students 1L year. Um, Some will hire students later. So it really depends. Now, the clerkship application process, if you are a law student and you want to apply for clerkships and you go to a well-resourced school, they will have lots of assistance for you in terms of submitting your applications, formatting your resume, cover letter, writing sample, helping connect you with professors who will serve as references. If you want to get information about clerkship experiences, there's not much there. 
a handful of law schools, primarily the tippity top ones, do a post-clerkship survey of their alums, asking some questions about the clerkship experience. Some schools make those surveys accessible to students in internal law school databases. Unfortunately, the survey responses are uniformly positive, making them basically useless. And the reason they are uniformly positive is because law schools dissuade students from saying anything negative about (laughs) judges. And they're very honest when they speak with me about what they're doing to ensure that the survey responses are positive. Many law schools don't even do a survey. The way that students get information about judges is via what I've referred to as the clerkships whisper network. That is the backdoor secret of fear infused method of half information sharing, whereby sometimes mistreated former clerks will share information with students. Sometimes they won't. And what I see when I talk to a lot of mistreated former clerks is they'll say, I talked to 10 clerks before I accepted my clerkship. Everybody said they had a great time. But when I circled back with them after my clerkship, a couple said, well, I didn't have such a great time, but I didn't want to tell you, or I was dissuaded from telling you, or I was afraid to tell you. So that is the system right now, which unfortunately causes far too many new attorneys to enter unsafe work environments because they lack information about judges. And this has enormous long-term career applications. Mistreated former clerks are then it really affects your relationship with your law degree and with the legal profession. Some of these former clerks like myself are kind of driven from their dream jobs or driven from the profession entirely. And unfortunately, due to the lack of information sharing and the secrecy and the culture of silence and fear and deifying judges, we are really perpetuating problematic behaviors in the judiciary. Um, The first step is increasing transparency on law school campuses around clerkships, we're certainly not stopping there. Thanks very much for your insights. Uh, it definitely sounds that um, you, together with uh, your project, you went through a process to literally um, understand this. If, if, we, if we may, please, if we can make, uh, just for my own understanding at least, one step back in uh, understanding what's the role of universities in the process, um, I, I will really try to let's say, to go back to kind of a, um, an objective analysis where I, because no, I'm, I haven't had a, a universe, um, an American university uh, formation myself, neither training. So uh, as I said, for, for, for Europeans and, or non-Americans, this is a lot to, 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 to learn, right? So I really, my question is twofold. First, the role of universities, please. Um, what's the, let's say, what's the official, in theory, role they should have? And second, um, uh, still related to, um, to the structure you mentioned before about the difference between the federal procedure and the state one, if you can please shed some light so at least I can frame the situation. Sure. So the role of law schools in the clerkship application process is my favorite question. I think they are the ideal vectors for change due to their centralized role in clerkship advising. Unfortunately, law schools are kind of hesitant to change, slow to change, due in large part to their close relationships with the judiciary, which I worry causes too many of them to prioritize their relationship with every single judge, even those known to mistreat their clerks, 
over their duty of care to all of their students. Every law school runs their clerkship application process in their own way, but they are all incentivized to funnel as many students as possible into clerkships. It goes to the public perception of the law school. It goes to the numbers they publicly report among the top law schools or those jostling to improve their position. It helps them get more, better applicants, the best professors who bring with them their clerkship networks, their relationships with judges. Law schools and the judiciary are enormously intertwined. And so law school's role is really to get students clerkships, particularly one person in career services called the clerkships director, whose sole goal is to get as many students clerkships as possible, which in some cases, unfortunately, in way too many cases, leads clerkship directors and deans to withhold information about judges who mistreat their clerks from students. That is the role of law schools. Um, and that doesn't mean they can't make changes. It doesn't mean they can't be part of the solution. But it really means every law school needs to take a hard look at their role as shaping the next generation of healthy, happy attorneys. And that's going to take a priority shift. The federal and state distinction. So federal judges, Article 3, federal judges have life tenure. Article 1, judges are Senate confirmed for 15-year terms. Um, federal judges and the federal judiciary are also exempt from Title 7 of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, meaning that if you are a federal law clerk and you are harassed by a judge, you cannot sue and seek damages for harms done to your life, career, and future earning potential. State court judges, either elected or appointed by the governor for a 10 or 15 year term, not Senate confirmed. They are subject to Title VII or similar state court laws. But unfortunately, most judges, state court judges, perceive themselves to have de facto life tenure because they are so often challenged for reappointment or reelection. And whether we're talking about a life tenure judge or a state judge, these are the most powerful members of the legal profession. And in the US, the legal community really, really deifies judges. They are lionized. That starts on law school campuses. It is pervasive in the messaging, in the programming, in the legal scholarship. And what I try to do, a variety of things, but one of them is create larger cultural change and to explain that we should be treating judges as employers running a small government workplace, not gods. And when we deify them, it causes far too many people to sweep problematic behaviors under the rug, either because they're fearful or because they benefit from the status quo. I remember reading on the website of the Legal Accountability Project that um, at the beginning of your work, you really tried to make a change in this environment um, by, well, at least um, advocating for a change in the legislation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because it's quite shocking to see how the law is holding the judiciary unaccountable for actions that seem like quite impactful. Yes. So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the anti-discrimination legislation that enables mistreated employees who are discriminated against based on um, race or gender or gender identity, as well as the ADA, which protects against disability discrimination. It enables those employees to sue and seek damages if they are mistreated. When the legislation was passed in 1964, it applied to private businesses. 
Uh, back in the 1990s, pursuant to two separate laws, the Congressional Accountability Act, the Executive and Presidential Office Accountability Act, Congress extended workplace protections to the other two branches of government. At that time, the judiciary was just vociferously opposed to being regulated, and they have continued to maintain that position since then. The Judiciary Accountability Act, or JAA, would extend Title VII protections and ADA protections to law clerks and federal public defenders. That legislation was introduced a few years ago, and that's what you're referring to, my advocacy on that issue, including written testimony at a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing last year. That legislation needs to be reintroduced. And unfortunately, Congress's lack of attention to this issue over the past year can really enable judiciary leadership to discount the scope of the problem, disclaim responsibility for correcting problematic behaviors in their ranks. And many rank and file judges support uh, extending workplace protections to their clerks, extending Title VII to themselves, but that is not the federal judiciary leadership position. It is an enormous problem that judges are above the laws they enforce and interpret. It makes a statement to litigants, particularly in Title VII cases who appear before judges, knowing that the person presiding over their case is not subject to those same laws. And it creates a real lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks. What I'm trying to better understand, uh, Aliza, and um, again, the research is fascinating and the problem you're pointing out is super valid. Uh, I'm definitely sure about it. I'm trying to put myself to really understand the issue. I try to kind of do a kind of user persona understanding. So I always try to put myself in the person trying to experience the clerkship, right? Um, So let's say I'm literally, I don't know the age, let's say the best age possible to apply for a clerkship. (laughs) And I need some data, right? So let's say that I want to, let let, let me put the question this way. Um, I want to be as much as possible. I've done law school, which by by default, I'm an analytical person. I really want to understand data first and then framing a problem and then not jumping to the solution until I have some data, right? So because thanks to your experience and the data you have collected and the feedback you have gathered and, and everything, it's so evident that you are kind of like at the end of the spectrum because you have you have you have you have been able to gather all, all this information, right? But put putting yourself into kind of like like a fresh man or a fresh lady just trying to apply, where do you think you can, can you point us towards where you can find the um, data or somehow statistics? Because I know the US are number one in statistics (laughs) in the world about um, how to measure and how to give a a rate to accountability, uh, transparency. Because I understand that feedback are so important, but they're somehow driven by people, right? Experiences, which sometimes are bad and funnily, uh, very rarely, or hopefully at least 50% are good. Where we can find some objective data? Where's your baseline? Good set of questions. There is a real dearth of data in this space on both the lack of diversity in clerkships in the legal profession and judicial misconduct and what percentage of clerks are mistreated. 
the Judiciary Accountability Act would impose data collection and transparency requirements on the federal judiciary, which we just said judiciary leadership opposes this. They really oppose transparency. Um, in the rare instances when a an individual circuit, so we have 13 federal circuits in the U.S., the D.C. Circuit conducted an internal workplace assessment a few years ago, 2021. That was reported on by the Washington Post. And that data showed that like more than 50 employees had experienced mistreatment, an additional 134 had witnessed or heard about problematic behaviors. And that is just in one of our federal circuits. It is hard to collect this data because law clerks are incredibly fearful. And as I speak with current and former clerks, even about reporting to the judiciary, they convey to me that anybody with a U.S. court's email address is not impartial, making it hard to empower them to even confide confidentially in someone who might be able to help. Um, our clerkships database is going to be sharing information with students about clerkship experiences. We do intend to collect high-level reports on trends and release those once we can anonymize the data, but that is not the database's primary purpose this year. Now, anecdotally, current and former clerks reach out to me every single day to thank me and confide in me and tell me I've never shared this experience with my law school, I've never reported this to the judiciary, but I know that each year law clerks from many law schools are mistreated. And I receive disproportionate outreach each year from the law schools who give me the most trouble and say, we're blessed to work with only good judges. Everybody has a positive experience. And our official policy is we don't warn students about judges who mistreat their clerks. And I don't believe harassment is happening. It's just women adjusting to their first jobs. So <laughs> we got a long way to go and change really starts on these law school campuses. I was going to ask you, you mentioned that law schools have a pivotal role in changing this scene. Yep. Um, from what you're saying, it seems like it is a complicated task to achieve that. Where to start in sh shifting their perspective, shifting their way of working? How, how are you going to like, you know, throw over the status quo and create something new together with them? So it's a couple things. For law schools, it's about changing the messaging, changing the programming, and changing the resource allocation. So when we launched last year, we decided one of the first things we were going to do is go on a fall fixing our clerkship system tour. Last year, I visited more than 20 law schools for programming to talk about judicial accountability, clerkships, transparency, and diversifying the clerkship system through data sharing. Um, the messaging around law school campuses, on law school campuses around clerkships, is just uniformly positive. It's overly optimistic rather than realistic, meaning students lack a critical perspective. The best feedback I've gotten from deans and clerkship directors is that I have changed the messaging and programming around clerkships on their campuses. And students, after last year's programming, just went through a clerkship application cycle and they are finally asking the right questions before clerking about judges as managers and clerkship experiences. So that is the first step, is changing the messaging on these campuses. We're going back to a bunch of schools this year, and we see programming as a critical part of our 
strategy every single year going forward. Because I think absent a perspective like mine, some of these law schools will just revert back. Um, but it's about explaining to them that when you conduct programming with law clerk alumni, with judges, um, it's fine to bring judges to campus. It is fine to have students or alums come back and talk about their positive clerkship experiences. But if nobody is providing a realistic perspective, you are sending the wrong message. And then it's about resource allocation. We think that every law school should consider participating in our clerkships database, which is a subscription model. So law schools will pay $5 for a student per year based on total JD enrollment, which we think is a very reasonable price to protect hundreds, thousands of your students each year from unsafe work environments and clerkship experiences like mine. At the bare minimum, every law school should conduct a post-clerkship survey of their alums and make those accessible to students. I see law schools not wanting to conduct a survey. Some don't have the bandwidth, but most really kind of don't want to know about mistreatment during clerkships. They feel conflicted about if they get that information, whether they should share it with students. Um, they're telling students, they're telling alums not to put anything in writing at several schools, which is enormously troubling. Um, so it's about encouraging every school to share information. Now, I think that it is always insufficient to do an internal post-clerkship survey and clerkships database because there are still information silos. Even if you have some information about some judges, your information is capped by two things. Who alums have clerked for in the past and their willingness to share information with you. No law school has a monopoly on information about judges, but every school has a ceiling on the number they know about. And whether law schools are sharing information about judges who mistreat their clerks with students or not, and I see in many cases they are not, it really doesn't help if one school is hoarding this information about judges. There shouldn't be competition for basic information about safe work environments. They are holding up progress by hoarding this information. Students at a variety of schools could use it. The judiciary could use it. I mean, feedback for judges is it can change judicial behavior because some judges do not know they are creating an overly hierarchical or imposing work environment. I hear from many former clerks who tell me about a bad experience and I say, did the judge know you were unhappy? And they say, no. And I hear that from folks in the judiciary as well. Judges don't necessarily know, which I think is kind of crazy. But regardless, a lot of people need this information and law schools hoarding it are holding up progress. You also mentioned that the unwillingness of students or like clerks uh, to actually share their experience. Where does the Legal Accountability Project come into well into the picture when it like comes down to this topic? That is a great question in several ways. One is changing the culture, and the second is empowering folks to submit survey responses anonymously. Changing the mm -hmm. culture. I write and speak about these issues frequently. Every single day I'm out there sharing my experience and talking about problems and solutions. I am just overwhelmed by the number of people who reach out having heard about my work and wanna talk about their own experiences. We have definitely changed the messaging around clerkships in the legal community, and that is great. But the biggest boulder I push up a hill is empowering law clerks to share their negative experiences, even privately, let alone publicly. 
We do think one of our longer term goals is empowering more people to share their experiences publicly to help create larger change, legislative and policy change in the judiciary, change with the challenging law schools. At the Legal Accountability Project, our post-clerkship survey, we are sending it to former clerks. They create an account with us. They provide their name, law school, class year, email address. But then once they've created an account, they can submit a survey response anonymously if they choose. Now, they're not anonymous to LAP, but they will be anonymous to the students reading the surveys. This option of anonymous submission, as well as the centralized nature of this database, vastly increases the breadth and candor of information accessible to students. I still get questions from law schools that trouble me about anonymous submissions and why they're important. And those deans and clerkship directors just don't get it. They do not understand the culture of fear, the culture of silence that they are creating and perpetuating. People are fearful. Law clerks have had a bad experience fear reputational harm in the legal community. They fear retaliation by the judges who mistreated them. And the retaliation piece is one that we are still working to explain to judges. Because if you are applying for a job and the employer calls a judge, there's a hundred applicants for the position and they say, so how was Aliza as a clerk? And the judge says, she was fine. That lukewarm reference has the effect of destroying the law clerk's career. The ability of judges to do that and for legal employers not to interrogate those references, not to that they put the reference from the judge above everything else in an applicant's application, whether because they think it says more about the applicant or whether because they fear pissing off judges are going to appear before in cases. Those things are holding up change, holding up progress. Judges have way too much power over their former clerk's careers. That is power that the legal community and legal employers are giving to them. I'm just trying to do my very best again to, to see also where possible the positives or how the Legal Accountability yeah. Project can also not just in take, to, take to the surface the beds, which from what I hear are enough, uh, but I, from my experience in the legal sector in Europe, uh, another another thing that it can can let's say uh, begin as hybrid and not relevant can become a problem if you don't celebrate successes or small ones. So my question to you is, Eliza, uh, thanks to your project, have you been able to shed some light on positives yeah. that were already there, but? They haven't been raised because there wasn't a, Great, yeah. you know, there wasn't Great question. a chance. Yes. So this is not a judicial misconduct database. This is a way to highlight excellent judges as bosses and mentors to apply to, as well as perhaps judges you might need to know more about before applying to. Not every judge is a good fit with every clerk. There's all kinds of things you might want to know about the judge-clerk relationship, considering it's so close. It's a few clerks and a judge working long hours behind locked doors and close quarters. So all kinds of stuff you might want to know. But we have been really appreciative of the strongly positive response from judges to our work. Judges understand that transparency helps both themselves and students to identify good fits and positive working relationships. 
they understand that positive reviews in the database are going to help them get more and better clerks. The database also diversifies the clerkship applicant pool, judiciary, and therefore legal profession for a couple reasons. First of all, the law clerk population is notoriously homogenous. It is overwhelmingly white. It is disproportionately male. Historically marginalized groups, women, LGBTQ, non-white, first-gen, disabled students, disproportionately lack access about information to information and the formal networks that help some of their peers get clerkships. There are some students who come in with a legal background. They're father is a judge, um, their mother is an attorney, they know and are prepared to get a clerkship. Some students come in not even knowing what a clerkship is, let alone how to apply and why they should get one. Now, our database democratizes information and particularly benefits those students, empowering them through access to information because they have unique considerations when deciding whether and where to clerk, including whether judges hire diverse candidates, and are sensitive to diverse identities. And today's law clerks are tomorrow's big law associates and partners, prosecutors and public defenders, professors and judges themselves. When we think about diversifying the legal profession, it starts with diversifying law clerk hires. Legal employers, particularly law firms and prosecutor and public defender offices, are really prioritizing the hiring of former clerks. That's why we think that the database benefits everybody, why it benefits legal employers, why it benefits judges. Looking at what you mentioned a little bit back, uh, like I think halfway during our discussion, I remember you said that um, the survey, the, the survey database um, is a solution. It is a way forward, but there are other ways as well. I don't think you elaborated further on it, but it has stuck in my mind since you said it. Uh, maybe it's also a nice way to slowly but surely head to the wrap up. Um, looking towards the future, um, what other opportunities, what other options, what other routes do you see um, that you can walk on to make this field even even more accessible, um, create an even more positive experience, ensure that there's more diversity, uh, shed, to shed light on even more positive changes uh, and move away from the ne negative experiences and, and the status quo of what it was. So I think it's two things. It is legislative and policy solutions via Congress and the judiciary and it's larger cultural change. Let's talk about legislation first. Congress must reintroduce and pass the Judiciary Accountability Act. Those are critical, basic workplace protections. But that is the floor and not the ceiling for judicial accountability legislation in the U.S. The Judicial Conduct and Disability Act is the federal judicial complaint process, whereby a law clerk or litigant can complain about mistreatment by a judge. Now, there are a real dearth of complaints filed by law clerks. They are actively dissuaded to say anything negative about a judge, they are told the right professional decision is to stay silent and not report the mistreatment. They are fearful of reputational harm. They are fearful of retaliation. And we right now cannot guarantee protection against reputational harm, let alone retaliation. The Judicial Conduct and Disability Act is currently governed by judges. Judges investigate their colleagues. And they are just notoriously unwilling to discipline their colleagues. We should take the JCD Act process out of the judiciary's chain of command. Civil rights investigators should investigate those complaints 
and we should make the complaint process more law clerk friendly, empowering them and protecting them so they will file complaints. The current process by which a law clerk can seek some reassignment or assistance during their clerkship is employee dispute resolution or EDR. Unfortunately, this process is also governed by other judges, making law clerks reasonably believe it's neither impartial nor confidential. And monetary remedies currently are not available through the EDR process. The bare minimum that Congress and judiciary and the judiciary can do on this front is provide for monetary remedies through the EDR plan. And if they can't, they must pass the JA to extend remedies monetary remedies that way. So those are some legislative and policy changes the judiciary can work on. Then in terms of larger cultural change, it is really about changing the messaging, starting on law school campuses and going up through clerkships to legal employers, to judges themselves, and empowering everybody to bring their full selves to work every day, including to aid judicial chambers. The next generation of law clerks and young attorneys are empowered to demand change in other areas. Yet the judiciary has resisted efforts at transparency and reform. And we need to be empowering students and attorneys to really demand that change, to speak openly and honestly about the full range of clerkship experiences, and to treat judges not as gods, but as employers running a small workplace with all the fallibilities inherent in that, with all the workplace protections that should be inherent in that. This is a job like any other. Judges should not be living in rarefied air. Clerkship should not be seen as this kind of gold star that causes people to really sweep misconduct under the rug. And we really have a long way to go in creating that larger cultural change, but I think it's doable. I think LAP's work has as good a shot as any at making that change. And I'm just getting started. Thank you for having this conversation with us. This open conversation, extremely knowledgeable um, conversation. I think we definitely learned a lot from our side also. Um, I, I need to study US law from scratch now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, otherwise, I can't cope next time we invite her. In the show. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really, really very interesting. And I'm honestly looking forward to seeing what new um, achievements um you you gain over the next periods because i think your work is relatively young still um you're really at the start you said this is only the beginning so i think there's a lot to see in terms of the changes in the coming months years yeah so our we've been collecting post clerkship survey responses since april the database is completed and we've been demoing the technology for law school deans and clerkship directors and we're hoping to launch in the fall and we're just very excited about the technology we built um, it's really realized my vision. This is what I wish existed when I was a law student applying for clerkships. That's beautiful. Um, we'll also add the link to the website to the description of the uh, podcast and in our socials when we launch the episode. Um, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, we're super excited to be publishing this episode together with you. And hopefully we'll be able to have you on the next episode when things have moved even further definitely thanks for having me on the show thank you so much for tuning in to the law of tech podcast if you want to make sure you keep up to date with the show and never miss out on an episode be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and follow the law of tech on social media if you enjoyed the show please give it a rating or review as it helps others discover the show and don't forget to share it with your network for now have a great day 
and I'll see you in the next episode of the Law of Tech podcast. Yeah.